Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Our first episode aired back on October 7th, 2020. At the time, the COVID-19 pandemic was less than a year old and the distribution of vaccines was still far away. American voters were preparing to cast their ballots in a presidential race that pitted now President Joe Biden against former President Donald Trump. And the country was still reeling from the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd at the hands of law enforcement. This hour, as we near our 100th episode, we're bringing back three guests to reflect on those last two years and look ahead to what we might expect in the year to come. Later, professor and national radio host Melissa Harris-Perry joins to talk about civic education and political participation. And Amira Rose Davis will talk about this pivotal moment for women in sports. But first, one of the show's inaugural guest and one of my favorite thinkers joins us again. Dr. Eddie Glow Jr. is the James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. Dr. Glaude, welcome back to Disrupted. It's good to be with you, Doc. It's good to see you, too. You know, I think about when we launched this show back in 2020, you were one of our very first guests. And all of the things that were happening at that time, and now here we are in 2022, something seemed like they have changed and others feel like they have stayed remarkably consistent. What would you say are some of the most significant shifts that we're witnessing in the United States over these last two years? You know, uh, so first of all, congratulations on the show. It's it's, it's actually quite uh, unsettling that, you know, two years have passed already. But, you know, back then we were talking about the choice we faced. What kind of nation would we be? And we were in the midst of grappling and, and struggling with the cycles of death, the, the pornography of Black death, the videos of police killings and the like. And wondering where we would be. And also we were struggling with the fact of Trumpism and what would it mean to get beyond him. And we knew that Trump was only the kind of symptom of the rot that's at the heart of the country. And here we are, I think two years later, in the midst of what feels like a betrayal, the betrayal in, in every way, shape, form, and fashion, right? Um, we don't have a George Floyd Justice and Policing Act We've seen a wholesale attack on voting rights. We've witnessed the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Um, and we've seen in so many ways uh, that Trumpism, whatever, whatever we mean by that word, has metastasized and overrun the Republican Party in its entirety. There, those kind of tensions that we were noting in 2020, you know, aside lost <laughs> in so many ways. So what are some of and, you know, and then on top of that, what have we seen? We've seen El Paso, we've seen, uh, which is 2019, but Buffalo, Uvalde, Highland Park, um, and the like. Um, it has been, how can I put this, Doc? It, it feels as if time has fractured, you know, has shattered 
uh, and something has been lost, um, I guess I can find something a little bit brighter in all of that. But that's that's what I, that's what's on my mind right now—a kind of madness that has overrun everything. It seems to me. I think it's difficult to reflect on these last two years and not be outraged in many ways, but also unsurprised that so much of what people thought democracy would save us from has actually revealed what many groups, particularly Black folks, have been contending with. But one of the spaces where I want to get your take on this, because I think some of us have this timid hope, is when we think about what's happened in the case, the murder of Breonna Taylor. So that when you and I were talking, when the show started, the then Kentucky Attorney General had said that he would not bring charges. And it seemed a part of this American story that once again, a life had been taken and no one would be held responsible. And now we're hearing that some of those officers could be facing federal charges. We don't have all the answers about what could happen here. But is that a moment for us to have some hope that justice could come in some form for the family of Rihanna Taylor? Perhaps, but I don't want us to get um, ahead of our skis in this regard. And let me just say this in terms of the description that I just offered earlier. One million, 18 Americans are dead. Close to 500 are dying a day of COVID still. That's the backdrop. So there's carnage, bodies, right? People I love, gone. Um, so to answer the question around Breonna Taylor, I should say that, of course, for the family, there is some semblance of justice here. But, you know, I, I, I have this analogy in my head, Doc. Uh, you know, there's a cord in the house that is, you know, it, it's an electrical cord and it goes in and out. It's a fire hazard and you get some electrical tape and you tie, you know, you wrap around it and it gives you some light for a little bit. But it's still a fire hazard. So oftentimes we tend to think about these moments of breakthrough, whether it's Derek Chauvin in, in Minneapolis and now the police officers in, in the Breonna Taylor case. And we say, oh, the system is work will work. And then you run up and they don't charge Rashard Brooks, the murders of, 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 of Rashard Brooks in Atlanta. And so part of what what we have to remember is that the cord is broken. The tape might allow us every now and then to get some, some electricity, but the cord is dangerous. It's a fire hazard. And so we need to understand that the criminal justice system, right, needs significant and substantive reform. Policing in this country needs significant and substantive transformation. And so we can't overstate these moments in terms of kind of fundamentally transforming how uh, police deal with us. Because at the same time that that's happening, we're in the midst, as you know, of a resurgence of a discourse around law and order that has resulted in an expansion of policing in our country. We see from the mouth of black mayors, Erica Adams in New York, a rhetoric that sounds just like the 80s and 90s. So even as this is happening, we have to be mindful of what is happening in the broader context around policing in our communities, it seems to me. I want to shift a little bit, but still connected here, because what we've also seen over the last two years is the power, the engagement, and the refusal of young people to accept the status quo. 
and to be content with these incremental moments to say, let's indict the entire system. As you said, it's fundamentally broken. What do we do? And at the same time, you and I are on college campus every day. We are witnessing young people and their families trying to navigate crippling student loan debt to even have a glimpse into what they've been told for years is the pathway to the American dream. The Biden administration has announced a plan to reduce a portion of that student loan debt. Some people have celebrated it and others have said this is not enough to even begin to break the system that has allowed people to be saddled to this debt really for the entirety of their adult lives. What are your thoughts on this move? Well, you know, I think it's a good start. I mean, 20,000, up to 20,000 for those who received Pell Grants. I mean, look, I think part of what has to happen is that we have to change the framework in which we have this discussion. So I, I stand between. At first, when it happened, I was, I was livid. I was like, you know, average student loan debt for Black folk is about 52,000, uh, 25,000 more than average white uh, student loan debt. This is not going to make much of a dent. It's going to have an impact, but it's not going to make much of a dent. We know that uh, student loan forgiveness up to 50000 plus could have substantively affected the racial wealth gap. Uh, we could have done something significant to address deep racial inequality. And so we have to keep fighting. Uh, change capping at 5% of income, all the stuff downstream, it matters. It's going to You don't want to deny that. But we also know we had an opportunity. We had an opportunity to fundamentally address structural racial inequality, right? And we didn't do it. They didn't do it. And so we have, to, we have to continue to fight. And I think it's also against the backdrop of a story that has to be told, Doc, of you know, what has happened to American higher education since 1980, right? We have to talk about the divesting, right, the defunding of public institutions. What happened to the vaunted public ed educational system in, in, in Wisconsin? What's happened in North Carolina? What's happened in Texas, right? We need to tell a story that at one point, the UC system was free, CUNY was free. We have to tell a story about what happened when state legislatures decided to defund, right? Reduce their expenditures vis-a-vis -vis higher education and how that led to an exponential increase in tuition that has put this on a generation. And, you know, it's so funny to me. It's actually evil. You got all of these people, these baby boomers whose lives have been shaped by policies that gave them access to education, gave them access to home ownership, gave them access to so much that has built the foundation of their lives. And they're the ones who are crying selfishness, right, who are being selfish in this moment. We can't do this for these young people, this class warfare and the like. So I think it's an initially a great step, a good step, uh, but we have to keep fighting because it, no, it in no shape, form or fashion addresses fundamentally the crisis at the heart of American higher education and the debt that is overwhelming young people. But they're going to keep fighting, as you rightly said. They know they're not. This isn't a panacea. They know it's not enough. One of the things that I love about your work is that it's always evaluating where we are, where we can go, but it's always informed by history. And so I have to ask you, what are you reading right now? What, it, what are you taking from history to inform the work that you're doing? Right now, I'm trying, I'm working on this new book. At the heart of it is the metaphor of American madness, trying to deal with uh, the implications of what I've laid bare and begin again and democracy in black. What does it mean for a nation to lie to itself, 
from, from its inception, right? And how do we grapple with the fever dreams that spike because we know we aren't who we say we are, right? And so I'm trying to think about that historically, think about that in terms of our, the ways in which we imagine ourselves, um, in terms of um, you know, our national stories. I'm thinking about this in relation to the debates around critical race theory, the way in which we, you know, it makes sense that there's an attack, an assault on voting rights, and at the same time, an assault on the kinds of stories we tell ourselves. Those two things go hand in hand. So I've been reading a lot of American fiction, reading a lot of Melville, who was skeptical of a certain kind of story that America was telling itself. Um, I've been, of course, returning to uh, Du Bois, but also I read, reread um, Jose Saramago's novel, Blindness. Uh, I read, just finished reading uh, The Last White Man by Moses Mead, I think his name. It's been great. So I've been reading a lot of fiction, trying to get my mind around a kind of how I'm going to use this this literary trope of madness to tell this story about where we are. You've mentioned the different people that you're reading. And one of the things that I think is exciting is that I hear people referencing you. I hear them referencing your work and how the work that you've done over these years informs their understanding. And what's so powerful about it is that it's not just academics who are referencing the work of Eddie Glaude. I hear this in sports. I hear this in business. I hear this in community organizing. How do you navigate that role as a public scholar, right? A traditional scholar whose work is very grounded in academia, but you have used that to say, if we confine it to the walls of academia, we have missed out on the opportunity to really be part of the conversation. How do you navigate that role? Well, first of all, thank you for saying that. That means the world to me. But, you know, I'm a pragmatist philosophically. And so John Dewey in an essay entitled The Influence of Darwin on Philosophy said that, you know, a philosopher at his best will bring, and I'm paraphrasing here, bring his or her skill sets to bear on the problems of men and women. And so what I'm doing in the public sphere is enacting what I think philosophically how I think philosophically as a pragmatist. So it seems to me the task is to think carefully in public with others and to bring the fullness of my bibliography doc to bear on the problems that we all face and do it in such a way that my mama can understand it. And that's the value because at the heart of what I do is this moral concern. Right, that I want the you know the center of gravity of my public intellectual work, the center of gravity of my politics will be and will always be the most vulnerable among us and the people who make me possible. And so how do I bring what I know, my skill set to bear on the problems we face? That's what the pragmatist philosophically must do. And that's what I think anybody who can, who's concerned about questions of justice should do. This episode is our 100th episode of the show, which is phenomenal, and I'm excited about it. And I love that we're able to start with Eddie Glaude and then celebrate the 100th episode. So my last question to you is, given all that we've mentioned today, all that you're engaged in, what is it that gives you hope for the next day? Wow. You know, one of the things that I'm struggling with in this new book, Doc, is that the madness that I attribute to the country is in me. So hope is, is an ongoing daily struggle 
But what gives me hope is my unabiding faith. This is where the Afro-pessimists get it wrong. My unabiding faith in human beings to be otherwise. So my hope is what you do and what you do, what you've been doing for 100 episodes. My hope is in those young folk that we talked about. My hope is in everyday ordinary people understanding right, that the world as it is is not the way it must always be, you know? So my faith is in us. Um, it has to be. And when I lose that faith, it's a wrap for me. So, you know, that's where my hope resides, in us. Well, I thank you for your faith in us. And I also thank you for your commitment to us. Dr. Eddie Glaude Jr. is the James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor in the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University. Professor, thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, I'll talk to scholar and radio host Melissa Harris-Perry about her joy in our democracy. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. As we arrive at our 100th episode, we're revisiting some of the themes and issues that inspired us to start the show. And we're joined by some of the guests who've made it possible. Coming up, this year has seen both the 50th anniversary of Title IX and the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade. We explore what this year means for the relationship between politics and women's sports. But first, in the weeks following the January 6th insurrection and the inauguration of President Biden, I talked with Wake Forest University professor Melissa Harris-Perry. In that episode, we talked about what we might see from the Biden administration and the historic nature of Vice President Kamala Harris's presence as the first woman, first person of color, and first graduate of an HBCU in that position. In the year since our first discussion, Professor Harris Parry has become the host of the nationally syndicated public radio program, The Takeaway. I asked her what she's following in politics. Politics is happening in our daily lives in these um, much more proximate ways, but it's it's hard not to get dragged into the machine of thinking about federal policies, the presidency, the White House, you know, Congress as some big amorphous body. Um, but increasingly, I do try to focus my attention where I know um, that real policymaking, that the things that have these enormous impact on our lives are happening much more locally. One of the things that I know from your work is that in that focus on the local and the state and really the community level, 
you have been so devoted to promoting the role of young people in all of this, whether it's young girls, getting them to understand their sense of power and agency, or college-age students, that they should be leaders today and not be waiting from that. What are you hearing from the young people that you're working with about how they see politics at the local level or their sort of dissatisfaction with the national? One of the courses that I'm teaching is a course called Girls' Stories. Um, It's a bit of an American political history course, although we do a lot of contemporary work uh, as well. But we look at it through the eyes of girls. So imagine you're telling the story of World War II rather than telling it on the battlefield or rather than telling it um, from the perspective of FDR and his advisors. What if you um, looked at the story of World War II through the eyes of um, a Japanese-American girl interned in a American concentration camps? Um, What if we tell the story of the war on terror, again, not from the battlefield or from DC policymakers, but from the perspective of a a Muslim American girl living in New Jersey at the time, right? So that's kind of an effort that we're up to intellectually. And it's in part to open up um, the experience of students, of graduate students, of undergraduate students themselves, realizing that their narratives are part of history um, and that, in fact, we can tell our entire national and political history through the eyes of those who might be more frequently left out or marginalized. But, you know, when I I don't think there's any one message coming from young folks. I mean, I teach students at a fairly privileged institution who have a strong sense of political efficacy, um, you know, who believe that they can uh, not only make change as voters, but that they can make change as, you know, potential office holders. They have a very strong sense that they should be listened to, that their perspectives matter, um, that when leadership is ignoring them, that leadership is making the mistake. So on the one hand, like, you know, I think of myself as this, you know, middle-aged, you know, professor who is, you know, revealing to them that young people matter. And they're like, yeah, we already know. (laughs) We know we matter, right? We're part of a generation of young people who have taken to the streets and and who have altered the trajectory of history in our own lifetimes. And, And even if they are not the ones in the streets, right, I think they nonetheless reflect on themselves as part of that historical trajectory. The last time you were on the show, we were talking about the importance of civic education and making education, these conversations accessible to the public. And you mentioned your new course. I love that you're on Instagram talking about this course, sharing the readings, sharing the syllabus, and inviting people into conversation who traditionally maybe would not have felt welcomed. And at the same time, Professor, we are seeing widespread efforts to ban books to monitor the curricula that children are exposed to and really undermine the value of civic education and a publicly engaged education. As a political scientist, what does all of this mean for you? I appreciate that. Um, It's actually the reason I decided, you know, I haven't, I've, I've, don't do a lot on social media. I haven't for a long time, at least not in a very personal way, like I amplify things, you know, retweet that kind of thing. But I made a decision to, on a weekly basis, post about both classes that I'm teaching, one which is focused around mostly girls of color, um, queer girls and disabled girls, um, and then the other one, which is an African-American politics course. And I made the decision to be much more sort of open sourced about it to post the syllabus to talk about the assignments, um, you know, on a weekly at least basis for this entire semester, precisely because we're in the middle of a public debate about what should be taught in the classroom. 
And as much as it took a little bit of courage to do it, I'm a tenured full professor at a private university. And what it means is if I can't have enough courage to share what I'm teaching, how can you possibly expect you know, a second year public school teacher in the, you know, teaching fifth grade and making, you know, a quarter probably of what I make, right? To And without the protections of tenure to say, hey, no, I, you know, I want to teach these topics. I think, um, you know, we can often in American higher ed think of ourselves as somehow separate from the K to 12 system, um, protected from it, you know, sort of, you know, cloistered and particularly, again, those of us at private institutions, but the entire point of tenure, right, isn't to make us comfortable. The entire point of tenure is so that we have the intellectual and academic freedom to make our students and the general public uncomfortable. Um, and, you know, I think it ultimately that means everything about who we are as a country. I encounter a lot of students who profoundly disagree with my worldview and they profoundly disagree with it, whether it's ideological or generational. I mean, we, I had the students um, in my African-American politics class take the 1965 Alabama literacy test. It's available online. People can take it. They can see the kinds of barriers that, um, you know, my ancestors, my, um, gosh, not even my ancestors, like my my parents and grandparents, um, what they experienced in just trying to register to vote. So I had the students take that. And then we watched um, President Lyndon Johnson give the speech in the well of Congress where he says, we shall overcome. And, you know, again, I'm Generation X. We've always been taught that this is like this powerful moment when the president stands up for voting rights. Let me tell you, Gen Z was like, that's trash. We are not for this. He did not do enough. He is doing this, you know, gender binary. He's doing a binary around black and white. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> like y'all weren't moved by Johnson's speech. So in that case, they're not disagreeing with me ideologically, but they had a disagreement with sort of the relevance of this moment. So, oh, that's exciting. And then we just spend time with it and we think about it and they push me and I push them. Honestly, I can't imagine a classroom that does anything else, at least not a not a social science classroom. Um and I'll say for my students, again, at a relatively privileged private school, this clearly wasn't the first time they'd had an opportunity to do that. But it terrifies me to think that in 10 years and 15 years and 20 years, I may be teaching students who have never been in a classroom where they could put an idea on the table, disagree about it, walk around it, think about it, challenge it. I, I don't, I can't fathom what democracy looks like without that. I think there is a fear of the engagement for those who are opposed to it. There's this fear and there's this assumption that in our classes, we are just proselytizing and whatever we say students take. And, and I always remind my more conservative friends, if that were true, I wouldn't have to ask them to keep reading. I wouldn't have to remind them it's in the syllabus if you just look and read it, right? So there's that disconnect. But one of those other places, you talked about being terrified that 10 years from now, you will have students who haven't had that experience. As we are heading into the midterms in November, for me, that is one of the areas where all of these things come together. How are we going to make a decision about protecting voting rights, about protecting body autonomy, about protecting trans youth who feel that they're getting these messages every day, that their lives are not valued? As you look ahead to the midterms, are you hopeful 
that maybe people will, you know, show up and vote in a way that can affirm the importance of those issues or what you're seeing across the board, meaning that we should be really concerned about who will show up and vote in the midterms in terms of how they will vote? I am not um, particularly hopeful in this moment, right? So in late August, um, I'm not particularly hopeful about um, a powerful turnout um, like the turnout that we saw in the last two presidential election cycles. And let me say, you know, I think it's important for um, uh, the received wisdom that uh, a high turnout um, always benefits um, the Democratic Party. That received wisdom is clearly being challenged in this moment. And I don't think that's bad, right? I, I am, um, I guess, I really am a populist in the sense that I want all the people in, whether they read or not, whether they know who the candidates are or not. I just, I want all the people in. Um, and so I'm, I have no fear of opponents showing up at the polls, right? It, um, in the sense of like, no long-term belief that if the opponents of, you know, whatever ideas I might hold dear also come to make their ideas known, I'm not afraid of that. What I am afraid of is a sense that showing up at the polls is irrelevant or that even more important, not just a sense that it is, but that it actually is. That people show up, cast their vote in one way, and then a small group of registrars, secretaries of state, previously elected officials are able to make choices about how those preferences are then articulated in the American process. So, I mean, this is already true, right? It's already true that every state has two senators, even if they're only large enough for one member of the House of Representatives. It's already true that the way that we draw districts means that incumbents get to choose their voters, right? We, that's already true. But the more that that becomes true, that those who are in office are the ones who get to decide no matter who the voters are, that deeply distresses me. And in part, that's not on the ballot, right? It's not completely clear to me that what Americans choose come midterms will make all the difference, right? It might will make some difference, but that it won't make all the difference in that. And the second thing I'll say is that I'm actually more concerned that people won't come, that both of the parties continue to either ignore the best of, of who American voters are, play to the worst of who American voters are, um, and that not only the political parties, but that much of American media presents democracy as a, a zero-sum, all-or-nothing, short-term horse race narrative about who's winning, who's losing, and and just does very little service to excite people about the really long-term hard work of showing up over and over and losing and losing and winning and then trying a different tactic. And um, I, I do, I'm much more worried about like the atrophy um, than the outcome. That atrophy of democracy is so critical because, as you said, we see it in so many spaces in how people run for office and how they govern or choose not to govern once they're there in terms of how the media covers it. And when you were on before, we talked about going into this Biden-Harris administration. And one of the things that you mentioned there that I want to bring us back to is that you said it was a different level of excitement compared to when Barack Obama was elected. 
in terms of what it means to have a president break that barrier versus a vice president who the voters don't really get to choose, but are attached in that way. When you think about the Biden-Harris administration, where we are now, late August in 2022, heading into these midterms, do you feel the same way? Or something happened in that interim to say, maybe this could be different? You know, I have to be careful because I don't want to speak just from the gut here. My gut tells me um, that that there's sort of no way that the Biden-Harris administration thus far has come even close to the emotional and political salience of particularly the first term of the Obama administration. Now, the good news about that is that the Obama administration had so much emotional um, uh, and political salience that it also caused quite a backlash, (laughs) Um, maybe even a a tsunami of a backlash. It's hard to imagine the ability to rile up opponents or allies for Biden-Harris in the same way. Look, my bigger worry about the Biden-Harris administration is just what it does to an overall Democratic bench. Um, I think it uh, it is a value to American democracy for both parties to be healthy and robust. I think there is a lot of evidence that the Republican Party is not a healthy party is not a party where um, uh, contested ideas on the American right are available, where, um, you know, uh, fiscal conservatives and, you know, deficit hawks and libertarians and social conservatives are all kind of fighting it out in a marketplace of ideas, right? That would strike me as a healthy Republican Party. Um, And right now, it seems much more about a posturing around positionality relative to former President Trump. But I'd say I also think that the Democratic Party does not appear to be particularly healthy to me. Um, that it's there's no clear bench. Um, you know, even if if um, President Biden does in fact run for re-election, um, it's not clear to me whether. Um, The party is best served by him not being primaried. I think sometimes there is value in a party having people who would primary even an incumbent president, um, not to throw mud, but to, you know, open possibility. Um, And and, and look, I this is no shade on on Vice President Harris. I just don't think a vice president is in the same position to generate the kind of um, meaningful, again, emotive and political response, um, and especially maybe a vice president governing thus far, largely in a pandemic and therefore remotely. Dr. Melissa Harris-Perry is the Maya Angelou Presidential Chair at Wake Forest University. She's also host of The Takeaway for PRI and WNYC. Thank you so much for joining us. Professor Brown-Dean, it is a pleasure always. Thank you. Coming up, a look at how politics and women's sports shape one another in the year of the 50th anniversary of Title IX. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're bringing back some of our past guests as we reach 100 episodes and almost two years of Disrupted. Dr. Amira Rose Davis is historian and assistant professor of Black Studies at UT Austin. She's co-host of the feminist sports podcast, Burn It All Down. Back in 2020, I spoke with Dr. Davis about how sports are inherently political and how many athletes, especially Black women athletes, have no choice but to be politically engaged. 
Professor Davis joins us again to look at this year in women's sports, and we focus on the latest for Serena Williams and Brittany Griner. Professor, welcome back to Disrupted. It's so good to be back with you. You know, the last time you were on, we were talking about activism in sports. And this year, one of the biggest stories has been the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. And at the same time, this is also the 50th anniversary of Title IX. And you wrote an amazing speech that was featured in this year's ESPYs Awards in recognition of that anniversary. The speech was delivered by sports phenoms like Billie Jean King, uh, Megan Rapinoe, Allie Raisman, among many others. So I want to ask you, what was it like to write that speech and to hear your words delivered by such amazing athletes? Yeah, I mean, it was quite an experience from from the minute ESPN had approached me and asked me to do something for Title IX. I was like, do you really want me to write about Title IX? Because I can't in good faith celebrate it, you know, celebrate it at a time uh, like you mentioned, where we were seeing a lot of advocacy and activism around Roe versus Wade and and it's being overturned. And so I was like, are you sure? (laughs) And then uh, luckily they gave me a green light to really write a testament to the trailblazers, but also a kind of very present view of where we are and what the fight still is. And the athletes who I got to work with on it and the musical directors and Mickey Guyton, who sang beautifully interspersed with the words, everybody was on board and had that shared vision. And so I think that was my favorite thing about it is that you see people from Billie Jean King all the way down to a young girl from LA that we casted um, who was 12, right? And had these multi-intergenerational ideas of what the fight is and how it's been passed down and what we can do as a collective. You know, it always feels like when we're talking about gender, not just equality, but really equity, it always feels like it's coming in fits and starts, that you can be celebrated by a Billie Jean King and all that we know that she had to endure in her struggle to just be an athlete and just do this thing that she loved. And we think that happened so long ago. And then we hear from women like Serena Williams, who talked about being at the top of the sport and every day having to fight to justify her basic humanity and be respected for what she's done. She announced her plans to retire earlier this year. How do you view Serena Williams' legacy within that context that you just mentioned of these ongoing fights and these ongoing challenges that women athletes often face? I asked at the start of that SBS piece, how do you measure 50 years? And what do you measure it in? Is it the wins or is it, you know, the obstacles that you still have? And I think about that with Serena as well, because part of her greatness lies in the fact that her on-the-court impact not only on the game of tennis, but also her accolades, her medals. I mean, you lose count. You can't even recount. But it's paired with the fact that she did it while shouldering so much of a cultural burden. Both her and her sister Venus, but really Serena emerged as this site of all of our cultural anxieties and projections about Black women's bodies, about beauty standards, about women athletes, about their capabilities. And the longevity of their career has meant that they endured that as kids, as teenagers, as young adults coming into their womanhood, and now 
as new chapters of their life are arising. And I think about that a lot with these early barrier breakers. I, I study a lot of them historically who get burnt out, chewed up, and then they're rendered disposable. Even the greats like Jackie Robinson talks about how worn down he was about being made into a symbol, how worn down he was at the end of his life and he died relatively early. Debbie Thomas pawned her barrier-breaking Olympic medal in figure skating and is living in a trailer park. As I'm listening to you capture what these athletes give up, what's taken from them, it makes it even more absurd when we hear people like Laura Ingram say, just shut up and play. Because for these barrier-breaking athletes, they have never had the luxury of just playing. And it means then that in some ways, Amira, we as fans of these athletes, as people who criticize them or applaud them, we play a role in that as well. What do you think we owe to these athletes? Not just the, the standouts that you just mentioned, but those yet to come. What do you think we owe to athletes to really recognize what it means to be first or one of a few at this level? The idea of just shut up and play, um, certainly when espoused from, especially from the right, when athlete activism was really on the rise and voices started coming out, you could see how it was directed in a way towards Black athletes in particular. But that sentiment still circulates, that kind of latent sentiment that they should just be entertaining us. And I think that from the college athletes I work with to professional athletes, what they're saying over and over again is like, we have a voice as much as you have a voice. And if you're consuming sports, if you're watching it, if you're cheering or jeering or whatever you're doing, if you can center the fact that they're human and that they have a voice, then I think that that will help a lot of, of respect <laughs> flow differently than it has in the past. Let's talk about centering that humanity. I happened to be at the Connecticut Sun game in early August when the Sun were playing the Phoenix Mercury. That happened to be the very night that the verdict had come down in Russia sentencing Brittany Griner to nine years. And to be in that arena, to see her teammates for the Mercury link arms with the Connecticut Sun, link arms with referees, that 42-second tribute to her, the energy and the emotion in that space was palpable. But then you heard from her teammates, like Skylar Diggins-Smith saying, we don't even want to play. This isn't about a game. This is about our sister and our friend and how all of us feel vulnerable and what it means for WNBA players, but others in other leagues as well, feeling like they have to put their livelihood and their, their health at risk in order to do this. What is it that you hope comes out of this? Absolutely. Well, first of all, we need to bring BG home. It's terrifying and especially terrifying and compounded by the fact that, of course, she's a Black queer woman. And I wouldn't even just say in a place that's hostile to her, because I think that's most places hostile <laughs> to Black queer women. And one of the things that it requires us to do is continue to think structurally about how we've set up women athletics in this country for so long. The way that you make a living and, and make your earning is by going overseas. It's by leaving your home, leaving your family and I think that that is really draining. We've seen injury over there. We've seen just the toll it takes if you're going from one season into another season and getting no breaks. I think it also just raises the issue um, when people talk about what they go over there and are able to get. 
things that when they're negotiating their collective bargaining agreements, they're saying, we're not asking for private jets, right? But we're asking to not be in coach. Like we're tall, first of all. The New York Liberty, for instance, has a jet that they were able to charter to fly their team around and they actually got penalized by the league for that. And so it's like, if you're getting penalized for providing what you know is right, that's a structural issue. But the other thing is the bind that so many of these athletes are caught up in and being asked to abide by and believe in systems to bring Brittany home that have never shown up for them. Of the 144 in the league, most of these women are Black women who have been talking about the way the country has not lived up to its ideals for them and yet now is dependent on the State Department to negotiate and intervene on Britney's behalf. Um, and as Skylar said, like, you don't want to play, but there's that expectation that you're going to shut up and perform. And there's that reality, like, that's your paycheck. That's your livelihood. These are choices that women in every dimension of life, of career, of family have to make every day. That constant feeling as a mother that I'm never there enough. You know, there's a recent piece from Teen Vogue that talks about black women athletes like Serena Williams, Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles saying enough. Taking time for ourselves, recognizing and articulating these competing pressures that we feel and the ways that it can wear us down and to take a step back and say, I need to affirm my health, my well-being, my position, and not have to live in fear that by standing up for myself, I am some way taking myself out of that. That's a change. Do you think that we're seeing changes that can affect the systemic and the structural and the, the broader play of women in sports? Yeah, I certainly hope so. I think one of the best things that has been occurring to facilitate this kind of shift is that so many of these women have built their own platforms from which to speak. Um, Whether it's Naomi doing a documentary on Netflix or Simone having her Facebook series, they have been able to build a platform on which to advocate for themselves and others that has really, I think prompted a shift and a model and a blueprint for others to follow. Uh, I'll use Simone as an example. Obviously, during the 2020 Olympics held in 2021 because of the pandemic, she very publicly dealt with mental health and the twisties, which is also a physical health concern. And just dealt with the brunt of of hate and people telling her she was a quitter, she let down her country, or yada, 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 yada. And she continued to advocate, and she continues to advocate for mental health. She continues to advocate for bodily autonomy and for survivors in a system, in a sport, least we remind you, that has yet to fully finish dealing with its massive abuse issues in culture. I've been working for the last year on a documentary uh, narrative podcast on Black girls in gymnastics, and one of the things we capture is Simone's 
Gold Over America tour. And if you go there and if you were able to sit in that room, you could feel that shift in the air. That show was no longer about sparkles and and sequence and smiles, but there was whole parts of the show that was about mental health. There's one part that it really sticks with me where Simone is being chased around by dancers wearing hoodies that say your your insecurity, your anxiety is lying to you. And she ends up joining hands at the top of the stage with other gymnasts. And that's what pushes the anxiety creature dancers back. And you're just seeing this. And I think about all of the little kids, not just the little girls, but all of the little kids in the audience watching this, receiving the message that mental health matters, receiving the message that your voice matters. She gets on the mic at one point and says, um, you know, medals are not worth this. Like you matter, what you have to say matters and something doesn't feel right, you can speak up. And I think those are the seeds that are being planted by this generation. I'm hardly ever optimistic, but I am more cautiously optimistic than I ever have been about those particular shifts. We're seeing that conversation happen across college sports at the youth level, which is really important, and in professional spaces. And I think it goes hand in hand to other things we've been talking about. That humanization, that ability to say, our politics matter, our mental health matters, our bodies matter, our decisions that we make about our bodies matter. And just because we play a sport or just because you see sports as fun and games does not mean that we are going to sacrifice our voice on all these other things. And the more this generation continues to press on in that avenue and to stand on their platform to say or act and do what they need to do to be fully realized as as people and to take that spotlight that they have because of sports and extend it outward, I think the more the next generation will be invited to do the same. Dr. Mira Rose Davis is historian and assistant professor of Black Studies at UT Austin. She's co-host of the Feminist Sports Podcast, Burn It All Down. Thank you so much for coming back. Thank you for having me. Disrupted is produced by Jay Carlisle Larson, Kevin Chang Barnum, and Katie Tolarski. As we celebrate 100 episodes, I can hardly believe that it's possible. When we started the show, we weren't sure how it would go over for audiences because we're asking such big questions that can often be difficult and challenging. But I want to thank our past producers who have helped make the show possible. Thank you to James Scoble-Wolf, Shekinah Collier, Anna Elizabeth, Daniela Luna, and the many interns who have worked on our show over these last two years. But most importantly, I want to thank you, the listeners, for all of your support, your encouragement, sharing our episodes, and challenging us to tackle the big questions. You can listen to all of the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thank you for listening. <laughs>